Welcome to the Stay the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Martin Cohen. Martin is an author who specializes in popular books in philosophy, social science, and politics. Martin, welcome to the show. We're absolutely delighted that you've come on. Um, Perhaps you could start by telling us a little bit about why you chose the area of philosophy. How how did you get so passionate about the subject in the first place? Yeah, I think basically I'm not really a philosopher. This is the, the thing because the way philosophy is taught and it's discussed nowadays is it's very dry. Um, and I think rather petty sort of subject. And what I'm interested in is what philosophy used to be a long time ago. That's before the universities got hold of it. So I'm a, I'm a philosopher, but a pre-university philosopher. And the kind of thing that people in the general public understand as philosophy is exactly that. It's this pre-university philosophy, and it's to do with questions uh, and thinking about things in a different way. Um and in that way, it's much more about thinking skills. Right. So thinking skills, um, we all need to be taught more about that, especially in schools, which is a huge subject in itself. But what do you attribute to the the fact that you yourself think differently to, to other people? Why do you think uh, you, you have developed this critical way of assessing the world, where, whereas Others just blindly uh, take what they what they read and what they're taught and never question it. Yeah, well, I, my background is really schools, and uh, I, I did do teacher training, and I did teach a little bit in schools. But again, it's like academic philosophy. What goes on there is the opposite of what should be going on. Um, for most schools, it is a kind of sort of limiting people's horizons and suppressing their imagination and suppressing creativity. And I say that, as, as I say, from the inside, as a, as a natural teacher. I'm not hostile to teachers, but the whole uh, structure with governments have deliberately intervened to stop teachers being creative. They, they impose curriculum on them, curricula, if you prefer. Uh, and uh, that, that, is, that is what I think education is is so important as a as a cliche but it is it is where society regenerates itself and we're producing generation after generation of people who are all very passive only think along the same tram lines and so given that this happens so much you end up with things like philosophy at least philosophy as it is in in books and in podcasts as being a little corner where a bit of free discussion can go on and that's what I value about it sorry to interrupt it the risk of lobbing a grenade into the pond is um it won't work (laughs) is 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 academic is is teaching something that's too important to be left to the state ah um i i think problem is it's like the national health service or something um (laughs) the 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 problem is how it's done Mm. um and We've got to the point with the National Health Service, which people have valued for so many decades, and it's deteriorated over the whole period. And 
the, the, the centralized model of the UK is creaking. And what you want is you do want this sort of um, continental style approach. And it's the same in education that you've got, you've got uh, the state has dominated education. People did always think it would be a problem if they, if they did allow the state to do that. You've got your independent sectors, but they serve just a tiny, tiny little minority of the very rich people. Um, so I, I think the problem is the state, yes. And it, it's for the state to... To democratize itself, then it can function in this way. You can't get rid of the state. Um, education should <clears throat> should be free, uh, but it can be provided in a much more uh, varied and, and uh, subtle way than this monolithic centralized model that we've obtained. So I, I came to uh, hear about you from a friend who read your book, Critical Thinking Skills, which I'm reading at the moment and I think is absolutely fantastic. What would you describe as critical thinking? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad your friend likes that book. It's, uh, in a way, it's not my typical book, but in another way, it is a typical book because, it's, as you understand, it's a thinking skills book. Um, in a way, it's not that typical because it really is a bit of a lecture. <laughs> um, and, and that's slightly contradictory because it keeps saying in the book itself, it says critical thinkers don't like lectures, etc., etc. Um, what, what, what I like about critical thinking is that it can be so many different things. And in a way, that goes back to your first question about philosophy. Um, conventionally, critical thinking has been taught as a kind of logic course, an informal logic. And the idea is that the correct way to, to deal with arguments, for example, is to convert them into premises with conclusions. And this is all completely nonsensical. And, and if we look at real life, we, we see that the way people reason is much more varied and much more interesting than that. But worse than that, if you actually do convert arguments into premises and conclusions, you, you will actually end up missing the point of a lot of arguments and you end up with very bad reasoning because actual fact, real, real decisions are taken in a much more um, dynamic way. Um, you can stick in any, any nonsense as your premises and as long as you process it in a logical way, uh, the process is valid, as, as philosophers call it, but it it doesn't mean that the conclusion is any use to you. It's, it's, it's sort of what the, a great fallacy about logic is that it produces something useful. It doesn't produce something useful. It's a machine. It's a machine reasoning. It sounds a bit like the way government currently operates. It, it, it struck me that one of the problems we have, well, we, we, we are in a problem-rich environment, but one of the problems we have is that every, everything is binary. So it, it, it you know, it's... There's a, there's a phrase, there's a quote that my dad used to have in his study, and I thought at the time when I was a kid, I thought it was glib, and now I think it's, it's actually quite, quite profound, which is um, finding the right answers is easy, it's asking the right questions that's difficult. Mm. I, I see exactly what, I, what the main, really the main key idea in that book is, is that forget, forget all the stuff about the answers, which is what schools train you to do. They train you that here are the answers, learn them by heart. And the same goes on at universities. And uh, 
<laughs> that is another great problem for society is that at universities people also are not using critical thinking they're using this kind of passive thinking um uh, you take like the the british government's um attempts to uh, fund social care um and there's all the debate about how to to raise the money for that um it's a kind of backwards discussion and um, it should have all all the dis talk should have started at a much earlier point and all the possibilities were there at a much earlier point. And yet, it, British society is always like this, that we're always talking about things as though there's hardly any manoeuvrability, hardly any flexibility. And you, when you boxed yourself in and you choose from what's left, you are always going to end up with very bad outcomes. Just part of the problem is in, in the framing, isn't it? It's, I mean, I'm a, an English graduate, and it seems to me that one of the big problems we have is that the debate on anything is led by the framing in which the question is 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 posed. So yeah. if you if you corrupt language, you corrupt everything. You corrupt thinking. Yeah, that's that's ex exactly right. It's all to do with the framing, and it's it's all to do with what's left out. And I look at things like design thinking um, in in the book and in in other things as well. Uh, design thinking. So that's to do with a more graphical and um, intuitive approach to thinking. But it's a fascinating subject, uh, and what I like about it is how designers take uh, an established approach and they say, let's think about it from a completely different perspective. And they come out with a new way of seeing the problem, and the new way of seeing the problem then leads to new solutions. Um, a very cliched example, well, it's cliche to me, but maybe new to the listeners, um, is this gardening firm. And they said to all the engineers, they, they said, I want you to think of new ways to cut the lawn. You've got a week to go away and design a new machine to cut the lawn. And after a week, the, the engineers had really not come up with anything very different. They, they had tweaked lawn mowers. And... Someone in, in the firm realised that the problem there wasn't the engineers and their lack of imagination. The problem was the framing of the question. Mm. So they changed the question and they said, I want you to think of a new tool for garden maintenance. And at that point, one of the engineers came up with the idea of a thing like a strimmer, where instead of having a conventional cutting machine, you have a thing that whirls around in a circular cutting motion. And I was on a stick, and he got that from his child's yo-yo, you know, the child's toy that's up and down. <laughs> uh, but the whole point was that, this is a small example, but it's an example of, when you ask the same old questions, you, you get, get the same, the same, old, same answers. old answers. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's funny, I thought you were going to say someone was going to come up with the concept of a goat. If I, <laughs> if I, was, if I was asked to do garden maintenance, I'd buy a goat. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, you, you say that, you see, you do see nowadays, you see goats and sheep as well being used on things like parkland um, to maintain them. And I, I don't know how that idea came about, but it's a lovely idea. Um, it provides a space for animals, which is very rare these days. They're driven out from everywhere, um, being executed like Geronimo. Um, but uh, if... 
if that was also part of someone's rethinking the question, that would that would be a great example. This is uh, one I've used before, but it, I think we're we're in difficult times, and one of the problems when I when I graduated, one of the things I wanted to do was to work in advertising, and ha happily for everybody involved, that didn't come to pass. But there's a it's about the sort of malleability of of language and how that can be dangerous in 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 the wrong hands. There's there's a a wonderful story, but a sort of perhaps also dangerous story, of two ad guys from Madison Avenue in the in the states in I, I think the sixties, and they they they're in Central Park and they they go past a, 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 a there's a, a blind man begging, and he has a little card saying. Um, what what does what does his card say? Um, I'm I am blind. I am blind. And one of the one of the ad guys says, "I bet you I can add four words to the, his card." And basically, the, the point was his his bowl was empty, so no one was giving him any money. And he said, I, "I bet you I can add four words to his card, and it'll transform his fortunes." And the other guy said, "Okay, I'll, you're on." What were those four words? Go mm, on. <laughs> It is springtime, and and I find that intensely moving. Ah, <laughs> so he knew how to press the buttons, the right of, buttons, the, the right, right buttons the right of the buttons. people, and and I guess I mean you you talk about um, advertising in your book, Martin, which is which mm. is um, which is I'm, look, I am only up to chapter four, and I've got mm. to the the part where it says testing your own critical thinking skills, and you need about half an hour or you're given half an hour to answer the questions, which I wanted to put, put aside and uh, not be interrupted. So I haven't, I haven't done that yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. But um, what's so far been in the book has been absolutely fascinating. And it's the simplification of messages that are repeated and repeated. So there's a very, I think what we have to recognize is that people in the advertising industry, people in government are fully aware of how they can manipulate you and they can manipulate messages and they can, and I, I'm, it's making me sound very, that it's very sinister and I'm not intentionally trying to say it like that, but <clears> it's just that, that when you simplify a message, you lose the nuances of what's right and wrong. Well, it becomes a cudgel. It's a sledgehammer rather than a, a nudge. Yeah, but you, but you also talk about that, don't you, Martin, in your book, and how mm. how you simplify messages and repeat them, and and what that does is it it takes away the opportunity for debate, and that's where we need to draw the line on on things because you have mm. to be able to debate them. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the repeated themes in the book is is that when you have problems. You should have a free discussion. It should be a wide discussion. And it specifically, it references advertising culture because of the idea of brainstorming, which is something that is so uh, normal for an advertising firm. Uh, you just get everyone in and you let people think freely. But with the academic approach um, that we're brought up on, people are discouraged from brainstorming. Um, and indeed, in business, they're discouraged from it. And so the, 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 the narrowing down, this is what goes on really as a sort of cultural thing. It's always narrowing down a possibilities. And the reason why it's a sort of cultural thing is we have this whole linear approach. Um, and if you've got a line, <laughs> um, 
it can be very efficient. Um, you can get from A to B very effectively with a line, but you may, in fact, not want to go to B. B may be the wrong destination. And so this, this, this whole way that we think has to be examined again. And that's why I think critical thinking is important, because you said people say, no, I'm just a minute, I'm going to spend a bit longer thinking about other possibilities. I'm going to go through all the assumptions. Uh, I'm going to, to look at things that don't seem to be directly relevant. For example, you look at the background of people who are recommending things and their um, histories and, and also the, you know, you, you can spend ages. It's a kind of, um, <laughs> instead of following a line, you, you're roaming around in ever-expanding circles. Um, but that is probably um, where, where you pick up the creativity and the, and the new ideas and indeed the solutions often. What would you say, I mean, this is a big question, what would you say is the the task of philosophy? What is the objective? Is it is it to make, is it to allow people to think better? Um, well, for, for conventionally, I think philosophy is about challenging uh, arguments. Um, so it is about arguments. Uh, and it's saying to people, let's first of all see the structure of the argument. And this is a useful idea. To, to see this, how this, how someone is arguing, rather than what they are arguing, mm. because, for example, um, so it's more more. It's like the the journey is more important than the destination. Yeah, and also, I mean, the, the, we see it with the coronavirus all the time. There's an endless amount of factual claims, um, and since it all began, a lot of the factual claims have shifted, have shifted significantly. Um, but at any one point in the conversation, people are fixated on some supposed statistic, like at the moment there'll be a statistic debate going on about whether vaccinated people are more likely to get ill and, and die than the unvaccinated people. Um, and when, 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 when the statistics continually vary, and then, in fact they do this in mainstream science, but we hardly notice it, well, and, and you focus on that, you are missing something that's more useful to you, which is the overall thread and the significance of things. Um, and so what I think the philosopher, in a way, does is, is, is tries to step back. Well, that's what they should be doing. They should step back. And they try and get an overview. Um. Given that um, it was my friend Alana who put me on to you in the first place, um, I asked her whether she wanted to ask you any questions, and mm. and she has a few. So I hope you don't mind me asking you these. Have you got? Have you got a spare couple of days? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think they're very. I think they're the sort of questions we were going to ask anyway. But I, I think it's. Uh, so the first one is: Please ask. How can we protect ourselves from the ills of the present political system? Um, well, you can't. <laughs> um, but from a social, that's a sort of um, the tragedy of 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 life is that we, we are mostly um, passive. Um, what we can do is we can protect our, our thoughts, <laughs> and. Um, we can refuse to be pressured into thinking along the same tram lines. And again, I would, I'm a little bit of a, uh, well, uh, 
habitually I tend to disagree with whatever the mainstream view is. And of course, sometimes the mainstream view is correct. But there is a, this, this depressing tendency, particularly as again, we see it with the coronavirus for kind of groupthink. So what I would advise is to be aware of the pressures to think along certain, certain lines and to consciously make an effort to think independently. I think this is something that within the finance industry, we are kind of forced to do that, or maybe we're just attracted to it because that's how we think anyway, because you can't ever say that something is a fact and you have to do your own research. And even if something is a fact, the markets don't necessarily react in the way that people think. So you get very used to there being a non-linear relationship between a piece of information and what might actually happen in the real world. Whereas, because you, as you quite rightly say, so many people have gone through the education system and they're taught, you learn this and this is the result. And then they go out in the big wide world and they realize they either realize actually this is not how it works or they continue to think in those terms that there's always, you know, uh, an easy solution or a simple solution to everything and they don't question things. Or maybe they just don't want to question things. So I find that that when I am trying to research something and, of course, we've all had arguments with people, um, I'm guessing, about, you know, what's going on in the world at the moment and you try to present your case and present information there are times when people just don't want to look at the information they just say no i'm not i'm not i'm not reading that that guy's uh an xyz they find a reason why they don't want to look at the information or they they make an ad hominem attack on the person and therefore it negates what they've said and that's not a that's not a, a way that i don't care who says what as long as what the information they're saying is either good or bad. So I don't care if it's an actor. I don't care if it's somebody on the left or the right politically. If they're making a good point, they're making a good point. And, but other people don't see it like that. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that these pieces of information are often, they're not necessarily wrong, but it's where they've been picked from. They're little chips from a bigger, bigger uh, structure. Um, and it's the selection, isn't it? It's the selection of information. And we see, again, you know, with the virus, that you can get any uh, kind of conclusion out from the statistics. It depends how you're going to frame the statistics. For example, if, you, if you're looking at things like, uh, if you take a group which is mostly under 50, uh, then you'll get a very different set of outcomes to if you look at the people over 75 yeah you could have a whole set of statistics they did that initially with working out the vaccine efficiency where they largely tested it on people who were never likely to get ill seriously ill anyway um so i'm sorry yeah. to keep going on about that but no, well, to, no. A, to, to, a, oh, to a man no. with a dodgy pcr test everything looks like a case no um, martin yeah. please continue with that because <laughs> this is this is this is yeah. great and this is what we we have been critically talking about and alarmed that the whole debate is being systematically shut down. No, I mean, mentioning the PCR tests and everything is very technical and complicated. For a start, this is a, just a recognition that broadly, once things get to a certain level of technicality, people cease to try to work it out for themselves and then they look for authorities to rely on and they trust authorities. So they might, for example, trust the BBC 
Um, but we've seen how but that noise you hear is me vomiting into a bucket, by the way. <laughs> but uh, it's quite appalling what the, the media have done. Um, and one of the things that I do, I, I'm a freelance journalist, and I also used to do a tiny bit of actual newspapers. But I know how the media work. They just recycle press releases. It's done in a very, very lazy way. They go to, they turn up in the office at nine in the morning. They look at the pile of press releases. I've been in newspaper offices. This is how it literally works. They look at the pile of press releases and they pick one out and then they type it up. And you can see that going on every day when you look at, say, the Independent and you see the latest horror story on the unvaccinated. <laughs> That's what they've done. They yeah. haven't challenged any of the information. They haven't looked at the background. They haven't looked at the context. So all the skills of critical thinking, journalists have betrayed us. They are not using any of those skills. Yes, absolutely. And it's it's quite interesting that you mentioned that because, um, you know, one of my introductions to how the media works was when I was working in a dealing room in a bank in the, in the mid-90s. And we would uh, regularly be called up by the media uh, to be asked why a market moved in a certain way. And um, sometimes the economists couldn't think of a reason, like the markets moved in a way that was counterintuitive to the data that had just come out. So they would kind of think of something and say, well, maybe it was this or maybe it was that. And then then what you'd see is um, that printed on on the headlines as to why the market had moved. And I always thought that this is this is like a circular argument mm. of information. So if somebody calls me and says, well, I think sterling has gone up because um, because of X, Y, Z, then it gets printed. Then other people think, oh, sterling's gone up because of X, Y, Z. That might not be the reason at all. But it's only when you see your own comments being then printed back to the market that you realize that this is just somebody's opinion. And we we could be right. We could be wrong. It's not fact. And you need to do your own thinking and, and work it out for yourself. And certain things, are, are, you know, like markets, they're virtually impossible to prove as to why something has happened mm. or not happened. But but you're absolutely right about the media. I mean, we've been, been, been alarmed not only by the way that certain information has been lazily presented, if we could just put it that way, but also the way that it's there's been this increasingly determined... Uh, push to shut down debate and that that's that's even worse in, in in my view you should we should all be able to express our opinions and then work out what's right and what's wrong from there yes no uh, and in fact your your previous um interviewee i was listening on the podcast saying that you know, it's a curious thing about these coronavirus events is how everything is done in a very very totalitarian way um, so that everyone must be vaccinated. Now, all the people who specialise in vaccines and uh, and in epi epidemics and in health and so on and so on, they say, but just a minute, there isn't actually a case for that. It doesn't require everyone to be vaccinated. It doesn't make any logical sense because you're vaccinating people like the very young who are... <laughs> who are at no risk, realistically. No risk, and they, I, even the government advisory body is saying, well, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Nonetheless, mm. there's this, this everyone must do the same thing approach. Um, here, I'm speaking to you from France, and, and here in France, they had a very, very, very uh, um, imperial approach so that um, 
when they had locked down, you were literally not allowed out of your house. You had to download a piece of paper from the government. You had to fill it out and say, I would need to go to, out of my house to buy some food or I will die. In fact, you didn't need to say it, or I will die, but that was the implication. And furthermore, I will not go more than two kilometers from my house and I'll only do it once a week. <laughs> and everyone all over France was obliged to do this. Now, I say everyone, the, the, the curious thing about that is you had some outbreaks of the virus, which typically were near the big towns with big hospitals, and where, <laughs> you know, you could have drawn up emergency rules if you were so inclined, but you would have had to, rationally, you would have limited them to just a few bits of France, uh, maybe like 10% of the country. But nonetheless, the rules are applied to everyone just in the way that the rollout of the vaccination is applied to everyone rather than the targeted groups. Do you have um, any tickets for Macron's public execution? Because I, I have some for Boris's and I'm wondering whether you might want to swap with me. Well, you see, <laughs> it's, only, it's only that jump over the channel, but what goes on in, in Britain is relatively, it's, it's, it's like a relatively liberal environment compared mm. to what goes on in France. And it's quite appalling uh, indictment of the French and my family are French and that you know they assured me they said ah wait and see we the French people we will not accept these uh, you know this intrusion onto our liberties everyone has accepted them and, and that's the thing you're seeing in Britain as well basically what we thought couldn't happen what was supposed not to be possible it's very possible how do, how do we get out of this mess well, so it brings us back happily <laughs> to critical thinking. And what we've done, we have produced generations upon generations of people who all are trained to follow a certain narrow path in thinking and not to disagree, not to think about all the other issues that have been excluded. Um, and the jobs have been shared out like that. So that, for example, if you want to get on in academia, you... you better off not adopting an unusual position because unusual positions are not wanted in, in government. <laughs> um, there have been some high-profile cases. What you do is you please your minister. It didn't used to be like that. <laughs> I, I think Britain couldn't have got very far if it had actually relied on the genius of the ministers. It had to rely mm. on a wider pool of expertise. But now it's all got narrowed down, uh, made so hierarchical that most views are excluded. So you, you've you um, talked about some really interesting topics on your website, um, one of them being the, the lack of critical thinking in climate change and the other in the meat industry. Um, do you want to talk about those subjects? Um, well, what do you... <laughs> What are you referring to with the, the food debates? Well, well you, you you were saying that um, that the that the the idea that people should no longer consume meat and um, you, you know wh where where has that come from? That's like mm. we, we've if you were to think about it for you know just a few few moments, you'd, people would work out that this is how we've you know this is how we've lived for many many thousands tens of thousands if not longer of years by eating meat and now all of a sudden we're being told that meat is bad for you and we should all go vegan 
or there's certain pressure for that in exactly the same way yeah. that that we've been driving petrol cars for a very long time, even though we've had the technology for electric cars for a very long time, over 100 years, and all of a sudden we're now being told that we need to drive electric cars. And, and so there's this, this, we need critical thinking to break down these pressures, which may be coming from a financial incentive by certain bodies rather than um, what, what is good for us. Yeah, uh, I sort of on really creeping onto the Great Reset territory again. <laughs> um, I, I wasn't. I wasn't trying to. And and to be honest, Martin, I didn't know that you felt, <laughs> you know, in a similar way to us. So uh, you're, you, you know, before I invited you on the show. So mm. um, the fact that our our views seem to be aligned is 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 coincidental and not. Not any, you know, you, I haven't asked you to come on because I thought you mm. your views agreed with us. I wouldn't have minded if you completely disagreed. Um, it would have still made an interesting conversation. But but it just so happens that, you know, Tim and I have have, have had guests on the show, um, uh, Gregory Wrightstone, who's a um, who's denied the the idea that uh, climate change is man-made. I mean, the climate is changing and it's just a point that you make. But the mm. question is whether it is man-made climate change or whether it's something else like the, the cycle it's a cyclical cyclical phenomenon it's the cyclical nature of the sun that is far more powerful than anything that we're ever going to do that doesn't mean that we can pollute the rivers and and put plastic all over the place and and do things that are, are bad for our environment that's a completely separate issue that gets conflated but i know people who work in the press who say climate change oh yeah science has already said that it's definitely man-made and it's definitely got to stop yeah, well, uh, I mean, as I say, I'm both, mostly based in France these days, but I go to Britain enough to know that for at least 10 years, it's been fairly miserable there. The weather has not been particularly hot. Um, yet, we are told by the authorities that each year is one of the hottest years, not not just in recent decades, but... Ever, for, ever. Yeah, you know, for some outrageously long periods. <laughs> uh, and... and that asks people to put aside their own direct knowledge. You know, you look out the window, it's, it seems like autumn came a month early. <laughs> it seemed to rain most of the summer. And you say, yes, it's the third hottest year since records began again. You know, so they've addled our minds to some extent on, on, on that. Um, but there's the same kind of thing going on with food. And I, I, I find food quite a nice way to change the uh, terrain of the debates because again in food we, we have a long long period where society people built up what they consider to be food um, so we have these rather wonderful cultures um, built around uh, gastronomy and uh, things like the cheeses um, I'm, I'm, I'm not even myself very keen on meat I, I am a, what they call a a pescatarian. I eat fish, but I, I really don't like eating meat. But I'm not against people eating meat. This is the thing. It's, it's a sort of ethical thing. Um, I, I can see that you cannot realistically have things like a balanced farm. Uh, and, and indeed, I think nature requires the, these animals um, like cows and things. Um, if you look at Africa, you've got a very important role for cattle in, in creating uh, the, the, the 
conditions for the soil. It's, it's quite complicated. But anyway, <laughs> point is, from my own personal point of view, I'm not very keen on meat, but I am keen to keep this uh, traditional farming going. And yet, what we've got now is a very strong push to destroy traditional farming. It's been painted as a very evil thing. And of course, there are some very evil practices now done. There's something called intense, intensive farming. Um, uh, not intensive farming, but, you know, but where they are, everything is all done in a big shed with chemicals. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> the Americans do a lot of this, in fact, but the Americans also have a large network of small family farms. And what I would like to see is, is what, most people support the family farms and they're against the intensive farming. Why is it that the view of probably 90, 98% of the population is ignored and this 2% view, what you've got one count, you've got the vegans who say, let's have no farming at all. Let's just go to biotech. And you've got the intensive farmers who say, let's have no farms at all. Let's just have every animal treated like a sort of machine, a, a meat machine. Um, so it, it, it's in between there, there there's should be a sort of informed debate and people should be saying, look, this is, this is, for example, do cows cause global warming? That should be part of the debate. They do not cause global warming, but people are quite happy to be told that they cause global warming. The UN produced a spurious report on it. The UN, as, as you won't need to tell you to, has had such a disgraceful role in so many issues. And the reason is that it's not really a democratic body. It's a creature of politics. Is, is that part of the problem with the, I mean, how, how you would see the narrative with what's been going on with the coronavirus? Do you think it's, for example, the French authorities have just decided we want to control people, we want to have this in our back pocket, that if they start rioting again, we, we can pull this out? And, and we, need, we need to gas the voters. Um, you, you know, will, 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 do you think that's why they've done it? Or do you, or actually, I don't want to put words into your mouth. Why, mm. why do you think that, why do you think they've acted in this way that's so counter to um, common what, sense and logic? Yeah. Mm. And what, and what their populations want. Yeah, exactly. You know, why yeah. are they trampling on the, the values? Uh, if you take, taking France, you see, as, as the targeted group, the, the most oppressed group um, are the are, the, are all the little um, cafes and restaurants um, <laughs> who have barely been you know they, they've closed I think millions of these little family businesses have shut down um, the people who have benefited or flourished during it are all the the big chains you know the the supermarket chains people they they, they say come and just order online and we'll, we'll send it through the mail or you pick it up in your car. But the whole tradition of France, which is really built into the structure of society, of a little bar, a little cafe, there's a chef in the cafe, um, a trained chef, you know, not like in Britain, um, <laughs> and, and people would go in small groups and would eat. But no, it's all been forbidden for, for, for almost two years now. Um, that... That uh, the, you can at the moment you can go out, but it, it's hardly anyone is doing it. They're so frightened. Um, it's, if you had said to yourself, "Now, what as pol politicians are you going to target?" You wouldn't have thought you would target something so deeply uh, important to your own society and so held in so much respect, 
So, so why do they do that? You'd say must surely be counterproductive. Um, and indeed, you, you've got the protests in France, uh, and you've got protests in Britain, but particularly notable in, in France. Uh, uh, most weekends, thousands of people quietly marching to say, no, we're, we're against this policy. Um, <laughs> to stop, stop making us uh, have pieces of paper to go out. Stop, stop making us wear masks everywhere. Um, one, one, and, question, one question yeah. we've asked every um, guest over the last 12 months is cock-up or conspiracy? Yeah, well, <laughs> that's right. So I, I, I rambled around your point there, but that's because, of course, I don't have an answer to it. Yeah. Um, where, where's it all come from? I mean, we've seen the stuff about the um, the billionaires plotting it, but the billionaires plot up. This is a critical thinking thing. They plot all the time. They have plotted everything. Um, most of the time, what they're saying never comes to anything. And it's a little bit like your thing about why did the market move? If the market moved, any explanation is perfectly valid. But it's also post-talk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So someone says, ah, the market moved because the Prime Minister made this announcement. Um, if if you'd have predicted when the Prime Minister made the announcement, the market will move, it would have been more interesting. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So we're looking at this pandemic as though there is, uh, there is a logic to it. I'm not sure there is a logic to it at all. Um, it could just as easily be an out-of-control social uh, meme or whatever. This is this is the madness of crowds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's part of the collapsing of of all, all our systems. And when uh, when you see things like go back to the, the the food example, when you see things like all the the little farms being destroyed and the factory farming encouraged, and the people leading that are the vegans, the vegans are are people who actually care about animals and they're producing the worst possible outcome <laughs> for animals and probably the worst possible outcome for diet as well. And, and that, that is the chaos. It's a chaos in our political system. Why, why would the vegans be um, making the worst possible outcome for animals if they, they're saying not to eat them? Um, because you end up with most of the animals that were relatively humanely kept the, the little farms have all gone bust. What are left of the factory farming? <laughs> yes. And, and I know a lot of vegans, uh, they, they will say that it's better for animals not to exist than to exist on, say, uh, in, it's a very purest view. <laughs> Let's take bees, for example. Vegans think honey is evil uh, because it's exploiting the bees. If we said all the bees in the world die... and We don't have any, don't have any plants. <laughs> well, you'd think you'd think people would be wary, but they wouldn't be wary because you'd say they'll have little nanobots or something fertilising the plants. You know, this is this is where the people come in. They make vast amounts of money from the disasters that are created. Um, but literally, there is a vegans, and I've spoken to them. They, they would rather the animals didn't exist than they existed in an unsatisfactory state, as they well, say. The, the road, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. To some extent, to some extent, it's, it's just the ideology or dogmatism, and that's not exactly a good intention. You see, when you're dogmatic. Yes, I mean, there's a nuanced argument because small farms where animals are taken care of and the environment is more natural, where they're allowed to roam, and as you say, they're in balance with nature and they're they're in their natural habitat, and of course, yes, in the end, that they're used for food, but that is part of the natural cycle. Yeah. That's the incoherence in 
this radical perspective is that if you say it's wrong for animals to be killed, it must be wrong for them to be killed in nature as well. And you, you would try to stop it in nature. You would stop the foxes eating the rabbits sort of thing. Yes. Um, but it's an absurdity to do that. And we would, we would back off. We would say, no, in fact, we accept, this is what a rational person would do, we accept that animals die at a certain point. Now, if they're on a, a humane, traditional farm, animals can have some quality years. And there's a lot of farm animals. That's a lot of quality years for animals. But the alternative of, <laughs> of, of saying, no, it's wrong to kill them. It's not wrong in nature, and it can't be wrong for humans either. So it, 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 it's where you, uh, you often will get a sort of rule, uh, <laughs> abstract rule, which makes no sense. It's, it's part of the problem also that people just are not willing to look at, at where we are in history, just to assume that at the moment, at this point in time, right now, today, we have the answers to everything and we have the best information on everything. So what's being said now must be the most um, accurate way of or, or the best way of dealing with things. When in fact, if you actually look back in history, you get a better steer as to how we lived before and what we were doing before. And that doesn't actually fit with the changes that they're trying to make. In other words, we've we've lived for many tens of thousands of years on a mixed diet of not just meat, but of of um, you know of, of of bread, and that was developed obviously in about the last ten thousand years. But w we have a mixture of of diet, and that's actually one of the reasons why we've survived. We are omnivorous. We are yes, um, and therefore there there is no. And I know also there's research going on in individuals and certain individuals um, will react better or worse to certain foods and there's no catch-all diet that, that's better for one person mm. or, or another. So we can, you know, we can understand our bodies a bit better in that regard. But but going going back through history, what's got us to this point in the first place has been a balanced diet. And now what we're being told is, no, 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 the only one way is the right way and and, and the, all the others are wrong. And that's, to me, verging on a religious outlook. And we might be able to solve this, this quandary by simply starting to eat vegans. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, it, but it also, to be fair, says that, that, and there are people out there who say you should just eat meat, and I wonder about that um, too, because... Is is that that's not necessarily the right? It might be the right answer, but it's not necessarily the right answer either. Didn't didn't haven't we just had a balanced diet? And isn't that the best way to approach everything? Yeah, well, the link to that is is that when you look at food and things, and it's terribly terribly subtle and complicated the way our bodies relate to food and and to the ingredients of food. So, that, for example, um, I'm sort of the, the generation I, I go back to the 60s uh, just just and um but the, in that time the 60s and 70s it was all about things like people experts can make better food than the old food so that you had things like uh, mother's pride white bread which was made with all sorts of chemicals like chalk and, and i forget what else but you know um, it would last probably a week 
or maybe two weeks in the packet in your house. Not not in a freezer or anything. You just literally would just sit <laughs> in, the, in the packet. Um, the company that made it was actually almost totally dominated the whole UK um, bread-making scene because it brought all the flour up. Um, so for a while, the only thing you could buy were, were Mother's Pride loaves. Now, Mother's Pride loaves was excluding a vast range of interesting, fascinating different kinds of breads, which have come back now. So, you know, we should not abandon hope. Things can improve. There was a high point for this technocratic elite, <laughs> business elite, where they almost forced everyone to eat so-called modern bread and to forget all about the old-fashioned ways. In fact, now we really value all the old-fashioned ways, again, in bread. <clears throat> but also, we value all the different nutrients and the, the subtleties of the different seeds and grains and fibres and, and so forth. Um, and that's the thing is that with the replacement meats, again, is that people say, well, we can make a meat as good as nature. It's not at all as good as nature. It's actually all sorts of little things that go on in, in natural foods, which we haven't begun to understand. And so therefore, there's a kind of lack of humility in, in, in all the issues We're across the political spectrum where we think we control everything and we know everything. Um, and by stifling debate, people are able to get away with reckless policies. Are these some of the topics that are covered in your book, I Think, Therefore I Eat? Yes, that's, that's right. That's, that's a book just on the food issues. But when, yeah. I, when you go into food issues, you touch on so many things. Yes, absolutely. And um, so you say that you have a strong slant towards fruit and veg, but you're not, you're not saying that, um, oh, clearly, obviously, you're not saying here and you're, you're not be saying in your book that you shouldn't eat meat either. It's, it's like there has to be a proper debate about all of these things. And there's a lot of pressure. Um, I guess the pressure comes to children because obviously they are the future and their minds are, are the most malleable and will be manipulated by um, you know, advertising that they see on a daily basis and government control via the schools. As you were saying at the top of the show, the, the school might want to teach something, but they can't. Their hands are tied. They're being told that they've got to teach something mm. else. And and I know this from experience because I've got my, my, um, my two children, 10 and 14, who are in school at the moment. And we have mm. to have discussions about, you know, what they might be learning at school. Um, so a question that comes from that is how can parents explain uh, to their children uh, in a in an efficient way, I guess, uh, the, about the propaganda that's taking place in schools? Well, the best thing is for parents to have real conversations with their children. Um, I've just got one child who's in between the ages you mentioned, 13, um, extremely curious and also disagrees with a lot of things. He can be He's a boy. He can be quite annoying because he thinks he actually knows better. I think children are inclined to think they know better than the adults. Um, and on the other hand, that's quite refreshing because there is so much indoctrination going on and there's so much being pushed, pushed down certain paths. Um, so what I think the thing that anyone should do is just have normal one-to-one -one style conversations where they're not assuming that that 
the person they're talking to doesn't know anything. They actually respect the the arguments and ideas of, of the child. Do you think that the um, the term conspiracy theorist should be replaced by critical thinker? Ah, <laughs> I, I do dislike this uh, this whole meme of the conspiracy thing. It, yes, it really me too. is a, uh, a a way of suppressing debate. Yes. Um, I, I wouldn't, it's so toxic, I wouldn't even like to do what you just said. I would just like to say, <laughs> let's, not, uh, let's not have that, that shortcut. It's a, short, a thinking shortcut. It's, it's not helpful. Something might be a conspiracy. It wouldn't tell you whether it was true or wrong. Right. So, so labeling, I mean, there, there are people that are embracing the term, I am a conspiracy theorist because they are just trying to give their point of view and they feel as though they've done research that uh, bears up to scrutiny and they're having to to frame it in a way that that uh, takes away the argument of well you're just a conspiracy theorist by doing that but but actually um, as uh, at Zuby music said you know conspiracy theorists may just be far more research than other people. Now, there are also conspiracy theorists who've got completely the wrong end of the stick. And and we yeah. we have to differentiate between that. And that's a hard thing to do sometimes. But I think lumping everybody on the wrong on the other side of your argument as a conspiracy theorist is a very lazy way of yeah. and it's a very cheap way of not dealing with answers to questions that, that people don't like. Yeah, I mean they were the media are doing it. I mean, they create these terms like anti-vaxxer, um, and you've got the um, the internet, like Twitter, labelling posts as um, misleading. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's just literally suppressing debate, and, and I think it's got to be re really resisted this this tendency. Um, as far as people creating complicated networks to explain things. That's not a smart tactic. It's much better um, to stick to just a small small area and not try to connect it all up. Um, there's a place for these grand grand theories, but they're, they're almost certainly going to fall to pieces at some point. So I think people who literally... Uh, if it, I had your <laughs> previous guest talking about the stolen election, as he put it, in America. I... I, I I think you can have all sorts of personal views about, say, uh, Biden-Trump, but when when you end up having to construct very complicated and in unlikely explanations for how it was all worked out, which is, I'm thinking of things like how these election machines contain secret compartments, which had been pre-designed to push votes towards Mr. Biden. And, and you also then have to say that the people who checked the machines were also part of this um, plot. Um, <laughs> I don't know, I'm talking to people who are sympathetic to that position, but it doesn't really matter. The point, point I'm making is that um, if, if you're going to make any sense at all on issues, it's better to just stick to a narrow bit of it and, and talk, talk about that little section first. Um, you can have a, an overview and then all that. That's all right as well. But 
have lots and lots of complicated details, it's going to fall to pieces. It would be fair to say the average Biden voter is spinning in his grave right now. Um, to your point about overconfidence of youth, as a we were talking about a few minutes ago, there's a, a quote, a hoary old, the, the noise of a hoary old quote is now trampling over the horizon. It's a Mark Twain one, which is, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much he'd learned. I love that mm. one. I love that one. Yeah, mm. brilliant. The th the thing about uh, Biden, Trump, um, it's the anarchist saying that whoever you vote for, the government gets in. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I doubt. I doubt if Mr. Trump had stayed on with these. Well, anyway, <laughs> I, I I have I have that view of of politics. It's like that. It's it's basically. I know it's. If it achieved anything, they'd make it illegal. If, exactly, voting. exactly. Yeah. And I, I've always felt that they're all just as bad as each other. And 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 we, and what they're actually doing is, in many ways, dividing the people and making us argue amongst ourselves. When in fact, we should be really looking more closely at what they are doing, and not I mean, not I mean, not arguing is, with each other. This is where the critical thinking comes back in. See, because really, critical thinking is about having free debates, uh, which are based on evidence, and you look at arguments, but particularly on the arguments, you see. And this is where politics, the democratic system, should work. You, you have your chambers, and you have the people challenging the ministers and policy being adjusted. None of that goes on anymore. In fact, the policy is made by a handful of people um, <laughs> secretly... If it was back in Tony Blair's day, it was on this sofa in Downing Street. It was Tony and his spin doctor, Alistair. Um, they would not know very much about the area. And then nonetheless, that was the policy once they decided it. And then all the Labour MPs voted uh, as, as obedient, as uh, foot soldiers. So it always went through. Um, the debate in the House of Parliament was meaningless. So it's all, all links to our political systems. That we, If we did value critical thinking, it would turn up in our political debates, but we don't value it, and we've ended up with very poor decision-making as a result. Do you think that... Sorry, did you think that the parties that advocated for lockdown, namely the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, have any possible electoral future ahead of them? Uh, yes, because of, because of the system. <laughs> Um, but also, it's true that you can see that the public, this is what's rather depressing, is the public uh, do support uh, these, the, 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 when they're Well, it, it, said, it, said, it said the public support them, but that's because of Nadim Zahawi's uh, crooked polling, which I think is a fabrication and a lie. Uh, well, my, I was going to say... I don't, I don't believe I don't believe anything that comes out of the, the polling figures now. I think it's completely manufactured and absurd. If you, if you may not believe the polling, but if you look at how many people have been vaccinated and you've got numbers, you know, you've got... Well, like, do I believe the vaccination figures? No, I don't either. <laughs> you, I think you've got 30, oh, 30 the, million the problem, people. The, pro the problem we have is that everything conducted by the mainstream media is untrustworthy now. We cannot trust our mainstream media. The, the, the reason I bang on about this is because the most disconcerting <laughs> thing I think I've experienced in my life is going on a march. I've been on five now. Is going on a march with perhaps a quarter of a million people, a march that, as far as the BBC was concerned, never even took place. Mm. That is very, very scary. Yeah. 
there's that, but if I take her back to the vaccination figures, I think they're probably accurate. Um, I see no reason why they wouldn't be accurate. And what is remarkable is that people, you can talk to, you know, I only need to talk to, <laughs> to my relatives to know people do accept the, the official line. Um, and they are very frightened about getting this uh, COVID. Um, because we've been subjected to propaganda from the government re yeah. relentlessly for the last 18 months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's effective, you see. <laughs> but it, but in France, and um, as you say, there, there, mm. the voters and the majority of people, you know, the people who've had their businesses shut mm. down and, and all the family around them and, and everything else, surely when it comes to the time to vote, the the government will be the first, the, the, the people that brought this in, they'll be the first out and all you need is an opposition to it and they'll they'll get in, you know, with a, with a massive... Mm majority because what they're actually doing although they're they're pandering to by design or or accident they have helped big businesses and we know that big businesses have got the ear of government if not um through money through other sources so let let's let's give them some you know let's paint a, a, a situation where we're going to say that they they are not doing this on purpose and they they do genuinely think they're doing the right thing there will be more people who would want to vote against what the government's done so effectively they aren't acting in the in the people's interest and so they should be voted out um mm. so one would hope that this is the, the, the you know th this is the prediction of what comes next but if they manage to change the narrative so that it sounds as though that they've done the right thing. There, there are, I think people generally, although they might not be critical thinkers, they do have intuitions about whether things are right or wrong. And I think you can push them so far and then they will just turn. And I think in France, they're probably more likely to turn quicker than perhaps in the UK, but turn they will. Um, well, <clears throat> I think what we have is... Um, about 15% of people support the government in France. 15, it's tiny. Yeah. Um, but the curious thing is that that is enough. <laughs> it, it, within the French system, that is enough for Mr. Macron to get re-elected because all he, all he needs to do is to, to get the second highest amount of votes in the, the what well, they have two rounds of electing. He needs the second highest amount. He won't get the highest amount that goes to the far right in France. Um, but the second highest amount is split between at least six candidates. So if you've got 15%, you've got a very good chance of getting to the second round, where it's Macron versus the far right, at which point people either abstain or they, through gritted teeth, will vote for Mr. Macron. So you, you have a ridiculous... Uh, very unpopular. I'm not just my position, you know, I'm again, uh, it's not just hostile. He is literally very unpopular. You can just talk to any any ordinary people. They don't like him. They think he's very arrogant. Uh, he's trampled on all their rights, that he doesn't care about the local economies, the local businesses. But he probably would get re-elected, barring some unlikely unification of all the other uh, not Macron parties. Now, you've got a similar thing in Britain where 
the Tories have, have been elected over since the Second World War, you know, I think it's like 90% of the time or something, you know, isn't it? It's a huge proportion that they've spent in government. Then never, I think, never really the majority in Britain. They're just the biggest group. And so they, 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 they probably can survive as long as they can split opinion all the time. And, and that, that's sort of where we are. We, we have parties that have got very sophisticated at manipulating the electoral system. It's not the way it was supposed to be, but that, that, uh, that is uh, pro probably there's no way to, to rein them in. And that means that the decisions can get worse and worse because there's no comeback on the government, on the, on these parties. Yeah, that, I mean, that's completely, uh, I mean, that's true of, uh, of America as well. I mean, and, and of course that would be why, the idea of an election being stolen could be um, put forward because we know that the system is designed to, to in such a way that it, it just doesn't make sense. So if they're doing that, then what else are they doing? I mean, we can ask, extrapolate those questions out. Um, but it, it's also, as I think, as you were saying before, no matter who you vote for, the government gets in. But that something has to change there. If you were in power, if you were, if you were given um, given the power to um, to to make changes or at least advise within the government, what would you suggest that they do? Well, in terms of the overall system, I, I think proportion, an element of proportional representation. Would, would transform things a little bit because it gives a little more influence to the people. Yeah. And and what would you say to um, like new technology, like block te blockchain technology being used for things like elections? Um, I don't know much about that one. <laughs> well, it's um, what, what it would be is a decentralized, effectively a way of no individual being able to control the um, no individual and therefore government being able to control and manipulate any of the data. So um, it would all mm. be an open record effectively. And um, using this new computer technology, it would be impossible for things like votes to be lost and uh, for, for anybody to go in and make changes. I mean, I guess there's always a way, isn't there, at the end. Um, but the actual system itself would be robust and given that we've we've got this technology it could be taking over many aspects of our lives um hopefully for the better because it would make make it so that you have a more trustworthy relationship with whoever you're dealing with um because it's basically more open and impossible to forge um mm. but but given that perhaps that's not something you 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 might have thought of of about just um, asking the government or the people within government or maybe even the press to be thinking more about critical thinking uh, before they take the steps and the decisions that they make. Because at the moment, they have no incentive to do that. So how do we incentivize them to do it? Yeah, well, so is, isn't it the whole thing is that you, you have a, a system where the, the political parties don't debate anything. Um, the people at the top are, are sort of appear to be taking decisions, but I, I think we would all agree that it's not quite clear that they are. They, they are in a 
away or they are also creatures and so, so there are people outside the political system who are really making policies and and then you've got the the fourth estate the the media who have abjectly failed to to to, to provide any kind of analysis or overview um and so you've you you've got a population who are poorly educated um particularly in the terms of whether they can think about arguments and evidence evaluate evidence um so you are completely incoherent and broken down system in terms of democracy um and there's no no realistically there's no way to fix this <laughs> mm. um and and I do. This is my. I'm just giving my own rather grim assessment. I just think we we can see it happening all over with this pandemic. The pandemic's useful in a way. It shows you how broken down the political systems are, and it also shows you that it's not just one country. It's most most places. In fact, slightly more optimistic, you might say there are the odd places like Sweden where they actually had a different kind of thing. Sweden has shown itself able to stand apart slightly. But by and large, the world seems to be spiralling towards uh, uh, chaos. Ca- chaos and also authoritarianism at the same time. It's a funny way that they can mix the two <laughs> two approaches together, but they've managed to do that. Um, I, I think it, it, it's not so much that someone is in control, even even Bill Gates. It's it is more that <laughs> that the system itself it, uh, has has within it the seeds of destruction of its own destruction and it will drag us all down with it and is that so the is that the political system has or is that political system plus the media yeah we're counting the media as part of the political system right really. right yeah. so the way they're linked together because i i think that the the fact that the um the media companies have been effectively disintermediated if that's possibly not the right word mm. but but what i mean is that that they they don't make very much money from their stories anymore, and they're reliant mm. on these on these um, you know tech giants to, to who've got the reach and the data to push out the stories, and therefore. Well, well, one problem in the UK, Paul, is that the government has now become the single biggest paymaster of the media companies. Exactly, exactly. So it's so <laughs> when you one thing that we learn about. Um, say, for example, in the financial markets, to take a separate uh, a- approach mm. to, to how media works, you know that whatever's on the front page of the FT might be what the editor thinks is important. But there may be a bond collapse in some country in the world that they're that you can see on the screen that they're not talking about because they don't think that's important but actually within two months that becomes really important but that's by the time they've decided it's important it's too late but because the editors decided not to put that out on the on that day therefore you're not going to know it happens so all all media is effectively controlled by an editorial control so you're not necessarily seeing the world as it is you're seeing the world as as, it's as been. Lion, lionel barber um apologist in general for the eu chooses it to be um yeah, yeah as, in as the case ed- of the ft for example as, as editor yeah and and so so we know that from financial markets so we know that the truth is not necessarily and, and i'm not not saying that there's any any um this is done on purpose this mm. is there is a reason for it they have to sell newspapers and they can't sell a story about something that they 
don't think is a story. Well, and, if it bleeds, it leads. And, and so, exactly. So, so the media obviously love the fact that they've got these these headlines that are scaring everybody and is effectively clickbait and they could be making money out of it and it fits in with the people who are paying the money um, to do so. Uh, so it's a complete corruption of, of, of the system. And hmm. I, and I, I agree. I, I, I would have thought technology would help us. If you'd asked me 10 years ago, would technology help us to all uh, have a freer debate? I would have said a hundred percent. Yes, because it means that you can have, your own channel and you can put your own thoughts out there and as as can anybody else but it seems like of course we were wrong about that because they can then censor you at a higher level because they don't agree with what you're saying so it, it's almost made the situation worse yeah um it's a sort of paradoxical is that the internet is a powerful you know it does create a lot more debate and a very rapid exchange of information um, so that people can look things up. In a way, it's empowering. Uh, I find that sometimes. Um, but in another way, it's actually made everyone very passive. Um, so it's both something that has opened up debate and made democratised society, and it's something that has contributed to the shutting down of debate. And... <laughs> Yes, exactly. The opposite. And, and what I, I would say is whenever you read things, and this is a critical thinking thing, the first question you, are, you say is what, what is what has been excluded? You know, what is not here? What is not part of this article? Yes. And, that, and that's where we are in society as well. What, what is being excluded all the time? Well, they, they say that when, when an article is put out, there's, I, I don't know what the figures are. M maybe you know, actually, that um, the, the percentage of how much somebody will read an article goes down by its length. So, in other words, if it's, you know, if it's two pages, by the, by the number of people who get to the end will be mm. far fewer than those who've started it. So, people will only generally read the first couple of paragraphs, probably. And, and that is as much as a problem of people not wanting to spend time looking into something and being bombarded with information as partly to do with that, partly to do with laziness. So they have to constantly keep simplifying the message. And, and the more they simplify it, the more they lose the nuances of it. Mm. Well, that just um, reminds me of another critical thinking skill, which listeners might apply, which is, that we should skim read. Um, again, at school, you are encouraged to think that you have to go through the whole thing line by line and also sort of memorise it as well at the same time. Of course, it's incredibly inefficient and you'll hardly ever will read anything on that basis. What is more used to you is to skim things and you just... That is a skill. It is not automatic. I, I know lots of people who have never managed to skim read. Mm. But once you skim read, <laughs> the world opens up for information. And then the other part of the skim reading, of course, is that when you come to the bit that you are interested in, uh, do you have the skills to look at it closely? And do you have the skills also to go out beyond the article and to find new information, check things, follow things up? And that's actually the sort of thing that I think education is about, but it's, 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 it's not happening. Um, it's the kind of thing politics is about, and you would get better decisions, but not happening. Um, 
in terms of um, of 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 uh, where we are, I I think that there's this ballooning of information uh, uh, that has made the ability to select absolutely crucial at all levels. For example, if people are listening to this podcast, they could be whizzing along, pushing that little uh, lever at the bottom where you can skim to the next section. You know, <laughs> a lot of people will not do it. They will listen to a certain bit. They'll just go, oh, I've lost interest and switch it off. They could have skimmed along. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, we don't, we, 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 it's that kind of thing. It's not a complicated change, but it's a way that society should should train people at early age to be proactive, take control of what they're listening or what they're reading, not to just have it in a stream which they turn on or off. I listen to things on um, on podcasts at two times speed usually and all YouTube videos at at least one and a half or two times speed mm. because it's amazing at how quickly your brain adjusts to the speed and how how much information you can get through as well. Um, I, yeah. I haven't learned the skim reading um, technique, although there's speed reading techniques uh, that I'd love to learn, but I haven't got around to doing that. Tim, you're a fast reader, aren't you? So you can consume a book quite quickly. So you don't. I have that think. I, I, I mean, to what uh, to what we were just discussing. I think that the, the human brain is is so incredible that you you can literally whiz across a page, and the the, the brain will absorb what it needs to absorb. So as I, I listen to podcasts at normal speed, but I, I'm I'm convinced that all all of this stuff works. It's it's as if it's, it's as if you're in a it's as if you're in a, a kind of challenge with the brain. So like. I, what can I do to really put it through its paces? And, and the more you raise the stakes, the more the brain just effortlessly responds to the challenge. It's quite incredible. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So um, now you have, um, I'd like to talk about some of your books, if I may, because I, I haven't had a, because I've only recently come across you, come across you, yeah. and and I'd love to have read all the books before you'd come on the show, but that would have I was too excited mm. to get you on. Um, mm. But you have you are very prolific, and um, you've got uh, you've got many books. What's what is your favourite book, and um, and have you got any plans for a new one? Um, yes, I, I've got sort of favourites in a way. Um, one is. Uh, it's my second book I wrote. First book published, but the second book I wrote is a collection of philosophy problems because they're really riddles. Um, and this uh, website that uh, just been launched, which looks at sort of philosophy as a series of riddles, and I rewrote some of them for that for that website just informally as a as a reader <laughs> what, what, um, what website was it or um moti m-o-t-i moti.com it's a kind of eastern philosophy thing and it's about how we don't know anything now <laughs> coming back to what we're saying um I, I actually like the idea that we don't know anything um but this is in a philosophical sense um and which is a very radical sense so that for example what's what is there in the universe perhaps the most fundamental thing in the universe is that there is nothing in the universe um that something is transient and illusory and it's the nothingness this is permanent and it's it's, it's quite refreshing when you do these <laughs> these uh, completely useless discussions because they're not going to help you oh, i don't think they'll help you for some 
some Eastern mystics would say it helps you. Um, <laughs> but it, it, it also, this book is, is about, my, my philosophy problems book was about things to show you. Actually, it's true, literally, we don't know things. What, what the best we've got is we have a high probability of knowing something. That's the best humans can manage. Uh, the the, uh, the idea that uh, philosophy is built on the saying of Emil Descartes that he, he did know one thing, and that thing he knew was that he was a he was thinking. He thought I can be sure that I am thinking every time I think. But in fact, that's a tautology. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a statement that's meaningless. Um, yes. So we, realistically, <laughs> when when you are quite um, strict with yourself. All the things you think you know, you really only have a very high probability of knowing them. That doubt is uncomfortable, but certainty is absurd. Mm, very good, yeah. And, and this kind of way of re-looking re at everything is refreshing. It's not very necessarily going to get you anywhere. So that book is a popular one. The, the other one that I liked, it's called Philosophical Tales, and that's more biographical, and it looks at philosophers as individuals with idiosyncrasies. But that I find quite amusing. <laughs> um, and indeed, it's his way of sort of dethroning them, toppling them from their pedestals. Um, so it's a little bit iconoclastic. But uh, I, I think the, the thing where philosophy is on too high a pedestal is a mistake. So in both ways, I'm trying to take it down. One is philosophy, really, we don't know anything. And the other one is the people who do philosophy are a very odd group of people. This may or may not be serendipitous, but I'm I'm just looking at Martin's website, and this this will be of interest to Paul potentially. No holiday is my book that came nearest to being made into a film. Yes, at I've least seen I had it. a very nice dinner. Uh, blah 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 blah. Alas, the film it would have been for TV documentary never happened. I don't know if you're aware, Martin, but Paul is actually a director of short films. Oh no, I didn't know that. <laughs> well, and and we've made. We've made and we, we we've made we've made bucket loads of them over the last few months. Please, please uh, uh, get yourself a copy of the book. I can get you a copy sent out, maybe. Oh well, I I'd buy it. That's 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 yeah. very kind. But I'm I think yeah. I'm going to end up buying all your books actually. But I'm just wondering whether there's a future universe in which we may collaborate on, yes, on something. Yes, that would be that would be great because uh, I honestly. <laughs> This is maybe a Jungian thing. I don't know enough Jung, but I don't, yeah. I don't think there's any such thing as coincidence anymore. And, synchronicity, yeah. And synchronicity, synchronicity is the very first album I ever bought, and I think there's <laughs> a, a reason for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, the thing about No Holiday was that was also a very enjoyable book. I enjoyed writing that one. And it helps, you know, I think reading, this again goes back to education, it should be a very entertaining and enjoyable experience. School should be fun. It, finding out things should be entertaining. Mm. I, I totally um, agree. I, I is, love that not a, is that not a Feynman? There's a Richard Feynman essay or a book, The, the Joy of Finding Things Out. Might be. <laughs> I, think it, I think it is. I think it is. Yeah, he's a very shrewd person. <laughs> I, mean, I was watching a documentary about black holes and i just found it it was just absolutely fascinating it's a family show paul so keep it clean <laughs> well you've said more about your mind than, <laughs> than you probably should have done um but it, it was it's just absolutely amazing and you know what what it tells me or reinforces i guess is how little we know so when you start looking at the fact that there are these objects in the universe that are many things million times bigger than our sun 
not just thousands of times, but million. And we don't know much about them, but we have a an idea of, of, of what they're doing. And we try to work out what might be on the other side of it. And we also, you also learn things like, you know, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, but actually the fabric of the universe is expanding faster than the speed of light, which is probably something people didn't know. Um, how is that even possible that these things are happening? And then it makes you question everything that you know. And I know there are those... more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Indeed. And so it, 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 it speaks to the fact that we can never know anything. Um, you can, well, and I think that was Karl Popper, yeah. wasn't it? That you can only disprove things. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's another story. Uh, I did that in another book, all that. Um, philosophy oh. of science is, uh, in fact, in the philosophy problems, I look at a few of these esoteric um, things about the speed of light and things. Uh, I, I find it all fascinating as well. Um, in terms of black holes, um, there's an awful lot of bluster about that. Uh, for example, when you read articles about it on places like the Daily Mail, there's often an illustration um, which looks like it's a real photograph, right, of the black hole a mm. long way off taken by space telescope, but it's actually not a real picture. It's, it's, an, it's a fake picture. So I think just as the picture is fake, a lot of the claims about what we know about black holes is fake. Um, so I, I think it's a real mystery what, what really is, you know, the, the structure of the universe is st still match a very speculative area yeah i mean I, from what i understood they um in order to photograph the black hole that they did they needed a telescope that would be the size of the earth so what they did was they amalgamated um information from all the main telescopes mm. and then recreated it and and so i think the description was it was like taking a piece of taking a mirror, smashing it into lots of different pieces and then s spreading it about, taking the image and then remaking that image again. So mm. I don't know if that's a, a good way of describing it or a bad way of describing it, but either way, it wasn't one single telescope, but they had to yeah. do it because it was so far away. Um, but what they had discovered was there was a theory called Hawking radiation, which um, they they needed to predict whether the amount of of uh, radiation was correct or not and they through i mean skip to the end they did and mm -hmm. so what they expected to happen actually happened and what stephen hawking many years ago had predicted would be the case was actually correct and um so there were things that i think advanced our understanding of of black holes but yes you're, you're right it wasn't it wasn't a picture of it in the traditional sense but i mm. would I would go as far as to say that saying it's a fake photo suggests that it's been falsified. Mm. Whereas I think I would describe it as the best type of photo that they could take with our current technology. Um, when, when these things are supposedly created by the software, um, I think you've got to be a bit skeptical. I remember another one that was supposed to be the first picture of a black hole eating a star. Right. And, uh, and again, that was supposedly um, an algorithm had created it. But someone, a sceptical someone, actually 
found the original <laughs> data from the telescopes, which was uh, like a, about 10 pixels. It was 10 pixels big. Um, and basically, you couldn't see anything from this picture. Oh, wow. It's like a, B <laughs> like a PCR test. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I, I, I mean, I just struck by the whole black hole thing, which is that mm. Einstein said that he didn't think it was logical. And Einstein is always cited as the person who is, is like the theorist who predicted black holes. He didn't. He predicted the opposite. He said, no, I don't see how that could work. It doesn't fit my theories at all. And when you look at Einstein, and again, uh, it's not that I have looked at him very much detail, but um, you find that the whole theory of relativity is based on certain assumptions, which are not probably correct. <laughs> and, and Einstein's all right with that. He says, no, I, I, no this is a theory. <laughs> yes. Um, but we've, we've built an awful big structure using our computers and so on, on things that are actually underneath. The foundations aren't there. So uh, um, if, if someone could take a real uh, analog picture of a black hole, it would reassure me, but I'm still very skeptical about the whole theory. The one I loved as a kid was uh, the neutron star, the, the idea of something that's, a, I think it's a collapsed sun, mm. and it's so dense that you could have something with the mass of the Earth sitting on a teaspoon. Or less. Uh, or less, and I just thought that was—I mean, yeah, that, these that, things, these things, just are just completely mind-boggling. Well, that that I thought that was what a black hole was. Mm. Um, it's it's an infinitely dense dense mass. Um, Feel like a politician. <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, Martin, I'm uh, mm. I'm. I'm mindful of the fact that we have uh, we might be taking up a bit too much of your time, um, but I, I I'm so enjoying this conversation. Yeah. Um, the um, there is a there's another book that you've 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 written, the Doomsday Machine. Have you got time to talk about that at all? Or? Oh yeah, yeah. Now that one I wrote with someone who was a bit more of a narrow specialist, Andrew McKillop. But basically, I did write the book. He won't mind me saying that. <laughs> Um, he even didn't agree with some of it, the bit where I said that the renewables probably wouldn't be able to replace fossil fuels. Now, interesting, since I said that, uh, that book's quite a few years back now. 2012. Since I said that, we have got all these incredible advances in the wind technology and so on. Yet, I still maintain that most of it is an illusion. Um, most of the real energy is still coming from burning things. Um, so this... Doomsday Machine was looking at nuclear energy and the nuclear economics. And in fact, the nuclear economics is quite interesting. Is that it's got nothing to do with producing power. It's, it's a way, as you two will know, as finance, finance specialists, what nuclear power is about is a, is a way of borrowing a large amount of money to build a plant. And the borrowed money is then relent. <laughs> for speculative other projects or, or whatever. It, it, you know, you, you get, a, I think it's four, five, ten billion. It's a lot of money that goes into a nuclear plant at the out, at the front end. While it's being built, people are making money. And then the rest of it is paying back the loan over time. And the, and the actual nuclear power <laughs> is completely useless. Uh, and the, the costs are all huge at the end with the clear-up costs, clean-up costs. 
So the other thing about nuclear power is they never want to shut the plants down. So they're endlessly trying to either keep them going or they actually so-called mothball them. So you've got a lot of nuclear plants which don't actually produce any electricity. They're sort of living dead nuclear plants. So the whole thing is such a con. And as I say, it's all to do with money, not to do with energy. I thought it made a fascinating alternative kind of book. That in a way, it's looking at um, <clears throat> all these issues exactly as I was trying to say with critical thinking. Is you look at what's not being said, you don't allow yourself to be channeled into the this narrative. Is, this is, we're getting onto sort of Frederick Bastiat territory. So for people who aren't aware, um, well, I was talking about this with my colleagues during the week. One of the most famous essays in all of economic history is a Bastiat's story fable of the broken window it's called the broken windows fallacy i don't know if you're familiar with it uh, martin oh i looked that up so thanks so it's it's called the broken windows fallacy and essentially it's, it's it comes from france a couple of hundred years ago and he posits the idea that a um basically a, a kid throws a brick through a, a a baker's window and pretty soon a crowd gathers and they're all talking about the the chaos and the crowd says well, someone in the crowd says, it's a shame about the window, but on the other hand, look at it this way. Um, they're going to have to get a glazier in to fix the window and the glazier will be paid money and that money will then circulate in the economy. So maybe we should break all the windows. And then Bastiat effectively sort of steps in himself and says, hold on a second. There's, so the, the, the essay is called something like ce qu'on peut voir, on ne peut pas voir, that which is seen and that which is unseen. So we, what what the crowd sees is the broken window and it rhapsodizes about the effects of the money for the repairs circulating the economy. What the crowd doesn't see is what the baker could have spent his money on if he hadn't had to pay for his window to be repaired. And this is the problem with all of economics, that people think about what they can see, the visual impact of stuff that is um, vaingloriously spent on big infrastructure, spending or nuclear power plants or whatever it is. But what they don't see is what that money could otherwise have been used for, taxpayers' money that could have been used for other purposes, not least by the taxpayers themselves. It's a fabulous, it's a fabulous essay about uh, bad economic thinking. Yeah, uh, uh, that's awesome. And you, you mentioned the nuclear power plant, so I have to now ask, because this is one of the best things I've seen of the last, in the last decade. Have you seen the film uh, or the series Chernobyl? Um. Oh, I saw something on uh, a documentary about Chernobyl, which was very well done. But Paul, Paul I think, highlighted it. it. We have a media picks round uh, yeah. to, fin- to finish off most podcasts. And Paul mentioned it, probably, I don't know how long ago it was, oh, probably over a year ago. Yes, definitely and over I, a year ago. And I snuck ahead of him and took out a free subscription to um, Now TV, binge watched the entire thing in a day, and then cancelled it. So I have to pay for anything. Value is as value does. <laughs> but I have to say, it is the most extraordinary, one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen. It's an absolutely superb piece of work, and uh, changed my perspective on. Well, the, the reason I'm, I make such a fuss about it is because this is the the epitome of basically what happens when the state gets too big. The, the power of the ba- uh, the big bad state, and you can't get a better working definition of that than how the USSR fucked up Chernobyl. Yeah, Mike, 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 story Chernobyl. Yeah, what, what, <laughs> it's, in, it's in No Holiday. It's one of the holidays. Yes, tell us about No Holiday. Yeah, so 
it's uh, 80 little stories about places which are fascinating, but in a sense the opposite of a holiday to go to. Um, and Chernobyl is a... <coughs> actually, people do go on holidays to Chernobyl. This was the irony. I, 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 and I, as I researched the book, I found that, that you mm. could think of horrible things to do and companies are already taking people there on holiday trips, <laughs> which is a, that's the way society is. <laughs> um, and um, <clears throat> other other like holidays would be tropical islands, and the, the island certainly looks nice. But you'd find out that it was used for poison warfare, you, you know, and you can't really swim in the in the lagoons or go in the jungle without getting <clears throat> a risk of um, poisoning. Um, other holidays are, are things that would perhaps more political or more more media interest. Anyway, it's a, it's quite an old book of mine, but it, it, it's a fun book. And it's as time has moved on, it sort of stood up or stood stood the test of time. I'm I'm fascinated to read the um, the book about nuclear power, the Doomsday Machine, because I always thought, given the amount of power. At, that power potential E equals MC squared, what that actually really means is we have the ability to solve the energy crisis. And what you, from what you're saying, that might be true in theory, but in practice, it's, it's a completely different uh, issue. And of course, we know about what happened at Chernobyl, but if you've looked into how power plants were built then and what the problems were, these are things that I'm actually even with my limited knowledge of how a power plant would work, I'm surprised that they that they couldn't foresee these problems. Like if you've got a backup generator that's running on diesel, um, if if that breaks down, you your 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 get swamped by seawater. Your your system goes into meltdown. Yeah. I mean, did somebody not think why don't we build this underground so that that can't happen? Um, well, just because it hasn't happened in a hundred years, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Just, I just can't believe that, that that. Just on Fukushima, I mean, the the seawall was that height not because they thought it was the safest type, but because it would have cost a little bit more. But that's what it. That's that's always the problem. It's like the towering inferno. It all comes down to money. That's incredible. Yeah. That's an incredible um, statement. I didn't know that. I didn't know. So they that. actually they argued about the seawall. It's like the um, the cladding on the Grenfell Tower. You know, they said, "No, oh, yes, we could do it more safe, but it will cost." <laughs> Bloody hell! It's, yeah, incredible, incredible. Well, um, Martin, we we should go to media mm. picks, seeing as we're basically talking about them anyway. So. Um, I don't know if you have one, but if you haven't, I'm going to ask Tim first, so give you a bit of time to think about yours. Um, Tim, what's your media pick for this week? I I, I, um, I I don't really have one, so instead of not giving an answer, I'm just going to say, um, for, for people who, who have met me recently, they'll, they'll know that I have the letters M-A on my hand, so I, I write every morning with ink, M-A on my hand, which is short for Marcus Aurelius. I have a problem with, I think like most people, I'm not a natural stoic, but I'm trying to channel my inner stoic. And so my recommendation would effectively be, and you can find these on, online for free, you don't have to buy them. Marcus Aurelius was was one of the last, perhaps the last of the good emperors in ancient Rome. And he was played by, I think, Peter O'Toole in the film Gladiator. And Marcus Aurelius is perhaps the most famous stoic philosopher 
and basically he, he he put down his thoughts in um you can buy the book it's just called meditations but basically everything he said is just gold so here's just a few random examples you have power over your mind not outside events realize this and you will find strength and this is probably my all-time favorite uh, marcus Aurelius quote everything we hear is an opinion not a fact everything we see is a perspective not the truth and a variation on that thing would be from milton who i studied at when i was at college which is the mind is its own place and can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven it is within our power to change our reality mic drop brilliant mm. having said that you didn't really have a media pick that i think that's probably <laughs> one of the best that we've ever had we're a to, classy one yes um waste waste no more time arguing about what a good man should be be one so he had away with words on marcus uh, isn't he? indeed just, can i just say that when you look at these classics often what's good about them is these little nuggets yeah the pithy pithy little uh, sayings the whole thing is is stodgy but they yeah. have within it little gems yeah so there's there's a, there's a book i bought called the daily stoic which is a little basically one of these little sayings per day of the year so that's that's quite a quite a useful way of of, of tapping into it yeah the daily stoic yeah. so so I'm I'm gonna uh, just just by contrast because we'll come obviously come to yours Martin but just by contrast we need some knob gags now uh, no 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 <laughs> no I'm just by contrast my <laughs> mine's gonna be uh, Clarkson's Farm which is on Pri Amazon Prime which I don't know if you've seen it it's it's absolutely brilliant and actually my my kids are just obsessed by it and the family just want to keep watching it. Um, which I've I've had enough of watching. I've got to say, but it's the first time around. It's absolutely brilliant, and I'll explain why. Um, whether you like Clarkson or not, um, this is about what a farmer has to deal with on a yearly basis. And we talked about this earlier about the, the small holding, um, the small farmer, and and how we need to support these people. We need to be buying our food from them. They need support because. Um, they under, they're under pressure from government regulation. They're under pressure from the weather, and and um, they're they're under pressure from uh, you, you know the whims of of the advertising industry about what what you're supposed to be eating or not eating. You know the the false comments about fatty food being bad for you and all that sort of stuff. It's processed food that's bad for you, not fat fatty food. Um, mm -hmm. And so all, all all these things actually are very amusingly. Um, put forward in Clarkson's farm, but the, the realities of how hard it is to work on a farm do definitely come through. And if you look at the IMDB ratings, which are extremely high, it, it shows you how well this has resonated with, with people. I know he can be a bit of a clot sometimes, Jeremy Clarkson, but I think at the heart of what he's done here is he's shown um, how hard it is to be a farmer and how we should really be supporting them. Mm. Um, so as a contrast, the, wor the worst, the worst thing about this is one of the worst things about this is I think these figures relate both to the, the States and U S and also to Japan. The average age of farmers in those two countries is now like it's, it's approaching 80. Nobody young wants to work on a farm for obvious reasons. Yes. It's a disaster in the making. Definitely. Definitely. Mm. And, and w our farmers are not being supported because the government feel that they can get all their supply chains from abroad. Oh, what's gone wrong with that? I mean, it's just so stupid, so small-minded, and and obviously, you know, 
Um, it's not thinking about contingencies, what a what if situation. So, so for that reason, I know it's a, it's an entertainment show, and it will divide certain people's opinion because they they might not want to watch it because of him. But it, it's entertaining and both informative, which is the best form of um, of consu- media consumption I find. But Martin, what 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 is, what mm. is yours? Um, well, I, I I wasn't actually thinking of anything like a new or recent. Book. Is that doesn't, doesn't, have to, to doesn't have to be new. Oh, Martin, it certainly doesn't have to be. It could be anything. Uh, anything. In fact, the older usually the better because it stood the test of yeah. time. And um, I, I actually had in mind uh, Alice in Wonderland, <laughs> Alice Through the Looking Glass, because these are books, children's books in 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 a sense, but they're not really children's books because they're they're philosophy books, <laughs> and. Lewis Carroll, the author, was a mathematician, and they're very clever books. They're books about infinity and about um, nothingness, and all the philosophical debates are tucked away. In. That's why people people find them sort of curious, but you don't actually need to understand what's going on. You can actually just read that book or read a little bit of it. And again, as I mentioned earlier, I think reading little bits can be quite an effective strategy. Um, and there are riddles in there uh, and playing with words. And it's all very elegant. And, of course, it's, it's also accompanied by pictures as well, which is kind of fine, fine old pictures. So that's, these little classic books are much underestimated. And it's, it's probably one of the most, um, <laughs> you know, there was only a few books in the whole global culture. That must be surely one of them. Yes. Um, uh, and yet, yeah, on the surface, it's just a children's book, but it's not. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I'm Charles, Do- Charles Dodgson, fellow Christchurch man. And, and not only that, you, you adopted the title for your own book, didn't you, Tim? This is true. So I'm so delighted that you are able to, to, to ram a plug for the book into the, 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 the context. So, mm. yeah, so I, I read a book in 2016 called Investing Through the Looking Glass. Ah, so um, ba, ba, ba. <laughs> big reveal. It all makes sense. Indeed, everything's connected. I'm feeling left out. I haven't written a book. Still <laughs> <laughs> Mart- time, Paul. Still yeah. time. but we're creating art on a on a regular basis. Absolutely, so. absolutely, Martin. Um, look, it's just been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show and for giving us uh, so much of your time. Ah. And well, it, it's been nice such a to make verbal acquaintance with you both. Thank you, and um, well, perhaps we will meet uh, meet over a, 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 a um, ver de van and not too distant future. One hopes. Oh yeah, that, that might be good. That would be lovely. So if you're coming to the UK, please let us know, and we would definitely love to meet you for lunch. Um, yeah, and um, keep w- keep reading. No holiday. Yes, well, indeed, I'm I'm going to be going through. You can, all you your can books. start thinking about thinking about the shooting order. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. in- indeed, yeah. and. Just for people who want to find you both on Twitter and your your website. So your website's martincohenauthor.com. So it's uh, martincohenauthor.com. And um, your Twitter handle? Is it at DocMartinCohen. At DocMartinCohen. Um, so that's on Twitter. Are you, are you elsewhere or, or is that it? I'm really only on Twitter, which I find is an intriguing sort of mix of news and mad comment. 
Yes, absolutely. I think you've got to be careful. One has to be careful with their their Twitter uh, consumption. Um, because yeah. it, I've never had that problem. <laughs> Tim, Tim, that. Tim's, Tim's never had that problem. <laughs> definitely. Absolutely, definitely. Um, so, Martin, once again, thank you so much. It's just been brilliant. <laughs> I've really enjoyed it. And I, I really hope that we can have you on again because there's so much more to talk about. And, uh, okay. And, and so we, we must make... Uh, make sure that that happens especially Actually, if you haven't been recording uh, martin so would you mind just going over the last two hours again <laughs> i wouldn't <laughs> or i would rather not um, yeah we, we did a little bit of critical thinking but it was nice just to have such a free discussion which is what a critical thinker believes in absolutely absolutely it's an absolute pleasure martin thank you so much <laughs> okay cheers then bye. cheers then bye now bye thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next time This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you hadn't worked that out yet, I'd be really surprised. But please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.